0: can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're actually going to stop halfway through verse 6, which if you're following in the ESV, that's the first full paragraph there of chapter 4. I briefly thought about covering the whole chapter, which re- is reflected in our order of service there because um, we were going to respond with holy, 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 but we're going to shift that to next week and focus on the latter half of the chapter next week. So we'll just focus essentially on verses one through six, which is the throne of God. And as we consider apocalyptic literature, um, many of you know, oftentimes it is used kind of like a treasure map. Uh, If you can unlock the mysterious riddles inside, we'll discover when and how the world will end. Um, And that approach can certainly make for an exciting reading of Revelation, uh, but it rarely finds the author's central meaning. Revelation is ultimately not written to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Revelation is about God. It describes the glory of God, the power of God, and the sovereign rule of God throughout history, so we can expect to be confused from time to time as we read this book. But when that happens, we ought to come back to passages like this and remind us of the central focus upon God and his attributes. Remind ourselves that that is what John is doing. That is what Jesus is doing in his revelation through John. And it's important to keep two principles of interpretation in mind. First of all, as we spent several weeks on in the introduction to this series Revelation is cyclical, it's not chronological. So we find several cycles of repetition where redemptive history, the events of redemptive history are described over and over again, they're repeated. So you have sections, and you can look back at the outline we gave you for that, but we've come here to this first, uh, or sorry, we've come now to the second section, but as a reminder, the first section focused on the letters that were written to the seven uh, churches there in Asia Minor. Uh, verses, or chapters two and three are, are cover those, those letters that were written. And it opened, though, in chapter one with a vision of the Son of Man. And that vision continued to inform each one of the letters that was written. So really, the, the vision of the Son of Man was given to John. And then with that in mind, he begins to write a letter dictating what Jesus is telling them to dictate to these churches um, about himself, a reflection of himself and his character and his attributes, and then giving them exhortation and encouragement so that they might persevere. And so he encourages them to persevere, and he warns others that they must repent, right? If, If they are to remain faithful, if they are to remain a part of the church, then they must repent, And he said at the end of each one of those letters, he gave that same sort of encouragement to persevere and repent to anyone who hears what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we used that phrase, that element of each letter to say that this is is a letter written to us as well. This is a letter that's relevant to the church in every age. Um, We will always... Face persecution, we will always face temptation and trial in this present age, this gospel age. And what we have to remind ourselves of, it's that vision of the Son of Man. It's the vision and the reminder of what Christ has done for us. And so the Lord's instruction to them applies to the church in every age. Now, this morning, we transition to the second section of the book, and it focuses upon seven seals. So we go from seven churches to seven seals, from chapter 4, 1 through 8, 1, the very beginning of chapter 8. But The scene opens with a description here of the heavenly throne with all of its splendor and glory in chapter 4. And then the lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals is the central component of chapter 5. Then as the seals are opened, we will see Christ our King repeatedly conquering his and our enemies from the beginning of this present age until its completion on the great day of the wrath of God and the lamb so the section will conclude with a picture of the praise of the universal church in glory what you have is 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 sort of church history playing itself out in every age throughout church and and then a reminder of the the glory that awaits it, it's it's everything from beginning to end of, of this age and the age to come in this section. So you could technically end at that point if it were chronologically written because you've come to the end. You've come to glory. But out of in, in proof that we're talking about a cyclical structure here, you're going to come right back to the church age again in chapter 8, and you're going to go through the trumpets, and then you're going to come back again, to the church age and end in glory. So, right? so you're constantly cycling back through these, uh, this redemptive historical timeline. All right, the second, so that's the first interpretive principle to keep in mind is that Revelation is cyclical. And I'll remind you every time we get to a new cycle that we're going back and hopefully you won't get lost in that. But um, I think it's even more confusing if you try to read it chronologically. I think you'd be far more lost. If you tried to read everything as, as, as uh, just continuing chronologically, and as I'll point out, that would mean that technically chapter 3 is where we end the church age, and now we're into nothing but future events from chapter 4 on. So I'll describe the, the first problem with that interpretation. But the, the second interpretive principle to keep in mind is that this book's genre encourages us to read it symbolically. And we have to keep that in mind as, as we're reading through Revelation, that we're to read symbolically first, not literally. Primarily what is being used here is descriptive terms to portray a spiritual reality that isn't necessarily physical. And so that'll be abundantly clear here as we're considering the throne of of God and the description uh, that surrounds that. So we'll see words like appearance, it was like, or it was as but it's not identifying things in a physical way. It's talking about their appearance, what they're like, and that's as close as he can get to giving us a description of the throne of God. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book that is a challenging book, but it is such a rich book. It is encouraging, and passages like this which point us to the centrality of of you and your throne in heaven, which is really the this central power in this universe, and it is what em- empowers your church it is it is what holds all things together, that you and you alone are doing that work, or if 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 even one molecule is outside of your will is outside of your Uh, sovereign control, then we've lost all hope. But you do control all things. You are sovereign. You are the center. And as we reflect upon that this morning, may it convict us and also comfort us with the words of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So read with me, Revelation chapter four, verses one through six. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if God is central, if he's the central character of the book of Revelation, then the throne of God is the central theme of this passage. Our interpretation should focus upon the glorious display of God's presence, which governs true worship in heaven and on earth. And so the array of colors and the numeric clusters that, that we find in this passage, they all are meant to facilitate our understanding of the centrality of God's throne. Notice that everything is described in its relation to the throne. It's either God seated on the throne, it's those that are surrounding the throne, and then it's those that are before the throne, the seven torches that are before the throne. But everything is centered around the throne. Throne is central in this passage, and so let's not lose sight of that as we get into the details. It is a throne of glory and of grace and judgment. And so if you're following your outline, that's how I've divided this passage up. Verses 1 through 3 is a throne of glory. So let's look at that verse again, First 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So after his initial vision, now John, once again, hears the voice of the son of man from verse 13, calling him up to heaven, verse 13 of chapter one. Um, And it's calling him here like a trumpet in order to show him the future of the church, which would include events related to the seven churches that had just received letters. And so the same son of man is now showing him what will take place in their future, in the future of these churches. Those who read Revelation chronologically, who read the whole book as a chronological timeline, they see the end of the church age here at the end of chapter 3. And then it's followed by John being caught up into heaven or going up into heaven, coming, you know, listening to Jesus' command to come into heaven. And they relate that then to the rapture of the church. They say, see, John was here on earth writing to the churches, and they've gone through that period, and now Jesus is symbolically bringing him into heaven to, to show him the future events from heaven. So he's looking down upon. This, apocalyptic, you know, this apocalypse that occurs afterwards, the, the tribulation, the great trial and tribulation that occurs, is, is now described from the view of heaven. And so they would say, the church is with John in heaven. The problem with that is that uh, Jesus' commission for John to write was to write this entire book. Remember in chapter 1, verse 11, it said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. To those seven specific churches, I want you to include this entire revelation of which only the first three chapters are are related to them. The rest of it's not really for them, but I want you to include it. Does that make any sense? Is that a proper reading of the text? Probably not. We want to see the whole book as relevant to us. We want to see the whole book as, as related to our day and age as well, this church age, which is continuing. Verse 2, we read, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. So once again, John was in the Spirit as he was in chapter 1, verse 10. And the first thing he sees is a throne. We've mentioned this before, but the word throne occurs 47 times in the book of Revelation. 47 times you find the, the word throne. It's found 62 times in the New Testament. So it's quite the theme of Revelation, and it's almost always related to the throne of God, but sometimes it refers to the throne of others, as we see here, the throne of elders, 24 elders. Um, there's also one mention of the throne of Satan in one of the letters to the churches. Uh, I can't remember precisely where that was, but it, but that's the only other throne that's mentioned, other than the the thrones that are in heaven. And so, if that is true, then when we get to Revelation 20, we're talking about the millennial reign, which describes some thrones that were seated upon. We should should assume that those thrones are heavenly, that it's speaking of a heavenly reign of Christ in that passage. And again, we'll have to you know, explain that when we get there uh, at the end of our series because it's going to take a while to get to chapter 20. But I think it's important to keep in mind this idea that thrones almost always are a reference, and they're always a reference, in my opinion, to a throne that is other than earthly. All but one is a reference to the throne of Satan, and all the other thrones would be heavenly, in my opinion. So that would mean that Christ's millennial reign must likewise be heavenly. So this particular throne, however, is is God's royal throne, which represents his cosmic authority. It's located, as I've said, at the very center of heavenly worship. Every other heavenly being is found to be on, around, or before God's throne, all seated around it. And then we come to the first half of verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So the one who is seated on the throne has the appearance of gemstones. God sits on the throne. He's, this obviously is a display of his authority. He's governing all nations of the world, as we read in Psalm 47, verse 8. So it's unlikely that we are meant to associate each gemstone with a physical uh, or a particular attribute of God. Uh, some have tried to say, you know, the jasper represents his holiness, carnelian represents his judgment, and then the emerald stone represents mercy or the emerald color of the rainbow represents mercy. Um, while those would be true descriptions of God, that's probably not what is meant by the use of gemstones here. It's, it's simply they're related to uh, highlight God's glory, to, to talk about his majestic beauty, his infinite value. They reflect the God who made them, right? The, the gemstones that we see, the valuable gemstones that we want to collect and gather, they reflect the beauty of God. When we look at them, they should remind us of God's infinite value and beauty. So Dennis Johnson says, John's description of the appearance of the one on the throne is restrained, offering nothing that could be turned into a forbidden image, this is important. The language is reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter one. We um, read that a, quite a while ago when we started our series. But Ezekiel chapter one verses twenty-six through twenty-eight, we re- we read this. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. You'll see some of the very similar language here, talking about appearance, likeness, as here from Ezekiel one. Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance, like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. I mean, it's, it's like this is exactly what John is reflecting upon. As he's describing the throne of God, it's, it's a very similar language, even, even uh, including the rainbow and the appearance that is like gemstones, like sapphire. So like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. So it's, it's the brightness of God's beauty, of his glory that is shining forth from the throne. And so the language that's reminiscent of Ezekiel with its emphasis upon images that have an appearance to things we can imagine but are not identical to them, it's not that he was actually seeing these gemstones, he's saying they're the appearance of them. The Lord has always protected his prophets from mistakenly portraying a visible representation of the Godhead in physical form. He's, he's always done that. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water and under the earth, and you can just continue to go down. He's, he's protecting them from creating some image that would display God for them to worship so that they could have some physical form. They, maybe they would think or they're, they're, they're prone to think that that will bring them closer to God to have some physical representation in front of them and God is forbidding it, even here in his word, the descriptions are given in such a way that we cannot portray this physically. We, can, we have a hard time imagining it. It just looks bright. It looks glorious. So Joel Beeky says, the best John can do is to compare this light to the luster of polished gemstones to show us the glory of the living God. So our earthly worship must keep God central as he is in heaven. God created us for his own glory. It is our greatest joy to bring him glory. So one of the ways we do that in the context of corporate worship is by devoting ourselves to the word of God, to his revelation of himself. Uh, it reveals who God is and what he requires of us. And so it's that Uh, Is that your purpose right now? Are you seeking to glorify God by singing his word, by praying his word, by attentively sitting under the preaching of his word? No question could be more important. Your purpose and your value are entirely dependent upon your obedience to the duty of enjoying and glorifying God. And as long as God remains seated on his throne, we trust that everything we experience in this life has a purpose. Only when God remains at the center of your worship are you able to enjoy what you were truly created for. And so as we draw near to God, as we behold the glory of the Lord in worship, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So the throne of glory is surrounded now by a reminder that it's also a throne of grace. We talk about the surrounding around this throne. It's a throne of glory, but it's also a throne of grace. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Remember, notice there the second half of verse 2 is he is seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And now around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And verse 4 around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So first of all, you have the emerald rainbow that reminds us of the beauty and the wonder of the grace of God from the very first rainbow that followed the universal flood. God has reminded his creation of the promise to show mercy. The rainbow points to the fact that following devastating judgment, his true disciples will receive mercy and grace. But what about the 24 elders? Who are they? And this, this is a little bit technical and, and can be confusing, but, but try to bear with me. The two primary considerations are that they represent the fullness of the people of God or that they're angelic beings. And I want to try to argue that it's a little bit of both, <laughs> okay? Um, because here's the, the thing. Initially, uh, you look at the white garments that they're clothed in, and they're, they're conquering, they're wearing a crown, um, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, Laodicea was uh, counseled to buy from Jesus white garments, and they were promised to receive the crowns if they conquered. So they're dressed in white, they're rewarded with the victor's crown. It seems to indicate that these 24 elders were symbols of the universal church. The number itself, 24, is not very common in scripture, and it could reflect uh, something about the temple. In the temple, you had priests there were 24 different orders of priests working in the temple. That's described in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And then in 1 Chronicles 25, there's a description of 24 orders of choirs or 24 different distinct choirs who were responsible for singing in the temple. And so in that regard, it's possible that the temple was reflecting as a shadow, reflects right the, the heavenly worship, the heavenly reality. However, it seems more likely that they do reflect a combination of the twelve tribes of Israel, who we find at the end of chapter of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 12, that these twelve names of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel, are written on the gates. It says, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Now you say, well, that's 12. That's only half of 24. What about the other 12? Well, look down at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you have the 12 names of the tribes of Israel written on the gates, and then you have on the foundations, the names of the apostles. It's a a combining of the old covenant community and the new covenant community, right? In one group, one people. Now, now that's also oftentimes described with the number 12, right? As as in the church is the uh, new covenant people of God. And so the promises that are given to Israel are given to us. And so that, that itself can be a little bit uh, confusing here. But I do think it's a picture here of... Um, the combining of, of the old covenant people and the new covenant people under one God. It also does seem um, it best that these elders, to understand them as angelic beings, and here's why. Angels are oftentimes portrayed wearing white, so it's not uncommon to see them wearing white garments here, um, and they serve various roles. So we've seen certain angels have particular missions given by God. And although it's rare for Scripture to refer to angels as elders or angelic beings as elders, it's not without precedence. Isaiah does so in chapter 24, verse 23 of of the book of Isaiah. Refers to angels as elders. So the term may reflect the wisdom of God's heavenly counsel, the wisdom that surrounds the throne of God. And then there's some significant complications with taking these elders as simply symbols of the church. One, the elders take the prayers of God. In chapter 5, verse 8, we read, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So the 24 elders are holding these bowls that are full of the prayers of the saints. There's a distinction here between these 24 elders and the saints who are who are praying to God. So they're offering the prayers of the saints to God in this worship. These same elders then go on to sing in chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, and we'll study that next week, I mean uh, in a few weeks. But it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So it's a they, it's a third person them, it's not us. If they are pure representations of the people of God in that in in, the, in that. Full symbolic sense, then they would use first-person language there. Uh, <clears throat> incidentally, the part of the problem here that a lot of people have associated these as not angelic beings but symbols of the church is because in the King James version, it does translate this in the first person. It's it's just a a mistranslation, it, it, and it's been corrected by almost every other translation. Um, But because of that mistranslation, I think some have identified the 24 elders as the church. And because as you read, it says, you've redeemed us. So it's equating them with the church there, with the redeemed. But then later on in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, again, the elders are always distinguished from the saved multitude. You have the the 144,000 of Israel sealed there in the first... Part of chapter 7, and then in verses 13 and 14, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? You know, it's sort of like pointing to the group of the redeemed. Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to you, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming from the great tribulation. Again, in chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, you have a distinction between the elders and the... um, And the saints. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. A few verses later, verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many pills of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And these are all the the saints singing out in, in glory. So again, the elders are distinguished. So much like the angels, who the uh, seven letters were addressed to? You have the angel in Laodicea, the angel in Sardis. What what did we say there? They were representing those churches. They were receiving the the vision, and 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 sort of that vision though was related to the their angelic beings representing the church, but they're not identified as the church. So they bring our prayerful worship to the one who is seated on the throne. They take.